Heavenly Father, thank you for changing our lives. Thank you for being powerful. Thank you for the truth that we can be bodies filled with your power, your strength, your spirit, that we can become holy ground wherever we go. I do pray that we will accept that privilege, that we will walk every day knowing that truth. I pray that your voice will be heard today, that my voice will not be a distraction, but that you will speak through me. In your name, amen. Okay, so like I said, I've really enjoyed reading Colossians and um, many days have just been sitting there thinking, wow, this is, this is fantastic stuff. And uh, I'm going to be jumping around because I'm doing more of an overview than speaking on um, some scriptures in chronological order like Shannon's been doing. We're going back. So we're going to look at some verses at the end of chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2. And um, I just want to first draw a couple parallels between our church and the church of Colossae. First of all, uh, this, you guys are pretty great. You know, you're pretty solid. And it sounds like the church of Colossae was pretty good. But it doesn't mean that we can't be affected by the thinking of the world. Like every day we're immersed in the world, right? So we are affected by the thinking of the world. And um, the church of Colossae had to be reminded of a few things. You know, just a little course correction here or there. But they weren't severely off, Course, and I don't think we are either. Um, and then like Paul, you know, he had this dramatic road on, experience on the road to Damascus. And I didn't have that kind of experience, but I did have an awakening a few years ago. And it's just really rocked my life in a wonderful way. And it's made me really passionate. And I, wanna, I want everyone to have that kind of experience. So like Paul, I have a, this heart for you to grow and to experience the power of Christ in your lives. So let's read these uh, verses. It's quite a few, starting with... Um, Chapter 1, verse 25. So I, Paul, have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And now chapter 2, verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So then, verse 6, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority." So what jumps out to me, and hopefully jumped out to you because I highlighted it, is the word mystery. I love this word mystery, and it's now translated in the, the updated version of the NIV as secret, which is a great word too, but I really like mystery because it has this thought that you can, it can be solved, right? Um, and secrets can be revealed too, but I like mysteries being solved. So I like this, and, and Paul, he writes about it 
mentions it three times in these verses, one more time in Colossians, and the book of Ephesians, um, which he wrote around the same time, he mentions, mentions mystery seven times. So he's really enamored with this concept. He's like in chains and lots of time to think about mysterious things, apparently. So what is this mystery, and, um, and, and why is he so excited to, to share this concept with both the Ephesians and the Colossians? So we have to just remember that um, until Jesus came, the entire history of the Jewish people was marked by just a time of waiting, waiting, waiting for the Messiah. And there were lots of prophecies. There were amazing um, like shadows and foreshadows of Jesus in the tabernacle. And these people had the tabernacle or temple with them that whole time. Um, but even though those act, those prophecies and foreshadows were very accurate, there was really no way for people to understand what the Messiah would do when he came and what it would mean for their lives. And they certainly didn't think that this Messiah was going to come live inside of them. Like, that was just, it was impossible for them to fathom that. Um, so let's look at the word mystery in Greek. It's mysterion, and it is described as a mystery or secret, not unknowable, but only known by revelation. So you couldn't figure it out, even if you wanted to, unless the Spirit of the Lord revealed it. So God, he's the only one who would determine um, how, when, and to whom this mystery would be revealed. And as we know, not everyone understood or was really willing to receive the answer to this mystery. And even today, many Jews and Gentiles alike still don't choose to you know, receive this. They reject the mystery and person of Jesus Christ, the deity, the God part of him. Um, and, and I think this kind of makes sense like, because this concept is it's just audacious. It's audacious that Jesus would be a God, that he would come live in you. So verse 27 states, the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The God of the universe, the one who existed before anything else, the one who holds all things together, he wants to live inside of you and me. That's crazy. That's just crazy. <laughs> but the thing is, it's crazy, but we know this. We're really comfortable with this because it's just a basic part of Christian theology. This is, this is what makes Christianity stand out. But we get comfortable with these concepts and we stop going, wow, and just, yep, 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 I know that. Um, so I think we just need a little shake up, like, hey, Hey, guys, this is a big deal. So, but I'm, I'm guilty too. Jim and I have been going to Mount Hermon uh, to an annual retreat in the Santa Cruz Mountains for a few, for many years now, probably like 13 years. And uh, there's a meeting room, and in one of the rooms, it has painted on the wall this excerpt, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I've sat there, and I've read those words and nodded my head, and, you know, on some surface level, just thought, yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. But Every time there's part of me that has this, this feeling that there's more, somehow seeping out of these words is this, this truth that somehow I'm, I'm connected to a mission, that somehow I'm tied to eternity through these words, and not just my own eternity, but the eternity of others. Somehow if Christ is in me and in you, we have the honor to work with the Messiah, the God of the universe, to help lift the veil from the eyes of those who are blind to this truth. And somehow that seems 
totally absurd, not to mention totally mysterious. So beyond being mysterious and absurd, um, it, it just doesn't make any sense, honestly, if you're trying to understand it with worldly wisdom and perspective. Paul addresses that in chapter 2. He gets it. Verse 4, he says, he warns the Colossians not to be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. And in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. The world is just, it's never going to get it. It won't. So we, that's, that's okay. It's not going to get it. Um, they're never going to stop mocking believers, people who think that Jesus is God and believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, it's just ridiculous. Um, skeptics will always say that our dependence on God is a crutch. There's just, there's not a way for them to receive the truth of Christ until the Holy Spirit shows up and unlocks the mystery. So maybe, maybe some of you are skeptics, and that's totally okay. We've all, we all have doubts and questions, and that's normal, totally normal. Um, and if that's where you find yourself today, I just encourage you to try to be open to the Spirit, to try to say, I want, I want to be open to what you have to show me. I remember, because uh, the Holy Spirit can do that. He, he'll show up, especially if you are willing. So I remember early on when Jim and I were getting to know each other, we were out in the D.C. area, and we were at the Lost Dog Cafe in Arlington, Virginia, and we were with a whole bunch of friends, and he was sitting a few seats down from me, and I was talking to someone else, and I was saying, to this person that I was a runner and I'd run cross country and track in college and suddenly I saw his head just swing and I could tell even though we'd already met that he was seeing me for the first time in a certain way and, and that was because in that moment we had a connection right like he turns out he was also a runner so we had this connection of sharing a mentality of the runner which not everyone understands like Runners are kind of crazy. Lots of, lots of different sports and such share this, right? Like you get it and other people just don't get it. Well, we had that moment where we were like, mind meld. And I could tell he was suddenly interested in me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will, un will enable you to understand what the world just can't comprehend. I often listen to Caleb Christian Radio in the car and I just... Sometimes I just chuckle because these people call in with these kind of ridiculous stories about the Lord working in their lives. And I think, man, if any non-believers are listening, they must think we're all lunatics. I mean, <laughs> these stories are so silly, but they're so real. Like, you and I know they're real. You and I know this is a value. You know this is not a crazy person. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. We have to have the Spirit inform us to get it. So um, I'm going to take this a little further with this, um, this book. Has anyone seen or read this book? Anyone? The big, I can't believe no one's reading it. The biggest lie in the history of Christianity. My father-in-law ordered an entire box and just distributed it out like candy. <laughs> so anyways, we have one. Now we leave it in our guest room because it's like, oh, you should read this book. It's really clever. Um, so I love it. It's... I'm going to ruin the book for you, but it's really short. You can still manage, probably in an afternoon or two, just reading it. Um, so here's the lie. And I, I honestly, I flipped to page 32. I looked at the chapter and right away. I just went straight to the lie before I decided if the book was worth reading. So you can do the same thing. So here's the lie from author Matthew Kelly. 
One lie is having a diabolical impact in the history of Christianity. It is worth noting that this lie is not one that non-Christians tell. It's a lie we tell ourselves as Christians. This is the lie. Holiness is not possible. Holiness is not possible. And I think we all definitely resonate with that. Like, we don't feel holy. And it almost seems like when we sign up to try to be holy, we know we're not going to get there, right? So he's definitely tapping into something we feel. Um, And we don't use this word. We don't associate with this word anymore. We kind of, ugh, right? The holiness movement, that's from the past. That's not really happening anymore. Um, Being righteous seems really kind of far-fetched. And we all know, like, the self-righteous people, they're really judgy. Right? We do, so we don't really want to associate with these words. And um, as we do that, we further distance ourselves from God. And the divide that Satan planted a long time ago, it just expands and expands. So Kelly, the author, Matthew Kelly, as he calls out this lie, he challenges readers to create what he calls holy moments And they're really simple. These are moments when we open ourselves to God, we set aside our self-interests, and we just make ourselves available to him. In fact, by the biblical definition, when we we become righteous, when we simply choose to align ourselves with God, we just say, I'm doing it your way. I'm gonna be with you on this. I'm gonna choose to step away from myself and get with you. So the, the method he has, these holy moments, um, he's like, they're simple. It's just choosing in a tough moment to deny your emotional reaction and choose the right path. And you're doing it not for yourself. You're doing it to be with the Lord. And I would describe these moments, these holy moments, as union with God or as worship. Because worship is a spiritual experience we sometimes confuse or interchange the words praise and worship, and there are some slight differences, but they're, they're really intricately um, interwoven. Praise is, is more tangible. There are activities like singing, praying, pronouncing God's attributes, expressing our thanks. And um, it's an activity we can do together or you can do on your own, and it, it ushers us into worship. But worship is a spiritual state, a personal union with God. And as my favorite author, Judson Cornwall, says, I just love this. He says, worship is unseen. It's undefined, without script. But when it is happening, the worshiper knows it. And so does God. Worship occurs when our spirit contacts God's spirit. And that's the connection God's hoping for with you. Um, Because the words union and united, in my opinion, really describe worship well. I really love the way the complete Jewish Bible translates the verses from Colossians that we've already read. I'm just going to pull a few out um, because it it just kind of accentuates this idea of union and worship with the Lord. So, And I I love the way that these um, verses are phrased as well because there's some power to it. So looking back at chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, and the secret is this. The Messiah is united with you people. In that rests your hope of glory. We, for our part, proclaim him. We warn, 
We confront, teach everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone as having reached the goal united with the Messiah. And in chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 10, Therefore, just as you receive the Messiah, Yeshua, as Lord, keep living life united with him. Remain deeply rooted in him, continue being built up in him, and confirm in your, confirmed in your trust the way you were taught so that you overflow in thanksgiving. And it is in union with him that you have been made full. He is the head of every rule and authority. And I just want to go back to verse 7 at the end, that thanksgiving in Greek is eucharisteia. And as you know, many traditions refer to the, the bread we use in communion as the Eucharist. And that word is togetherness. It's union, communion. So when we experience union, the natural experience that comes from that is thanksgiving. So I just love that that's in there too. Um, and then as you look at this theme of what we can call worship through these verses, uh, that, that's, when I, that's why I can say so easily, like, worship is pervasive. It provides and informs the entire book of Colossians. And when Paul kicked off this letter, he, he emphasized, emphasized the underpinnings of life in or united with Christ. And as we merge our minds, our wills, our attitudes, our relationships, our work, our wealth, our emotions, our bodies, our thought lives, our words with him, we enter into a state of worship. And it's there that we can be filled, empowered, transformed, and guided by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us. The one who existed before everything, who holds all things together, dwells in us. It's amazing. It's amazing. So here's the problem, right? You and I both know that we have to fight our human nature for these moments of union. We have to fight the logic of the world that's incessantly speaking to us. And we have to fight the gravitational pull of self, right? We're always choosing ourselves. It's, these, are just, these are normal, natural things, okay? We all deal with this. Um, and it's really so much easier, instead of conscientiously choosing union with Christ, it's actually really e much easier just to be religious, just to be religious, just to go to church, just to kind of live in the parameters of the verses in the scriptures that we like, that we think, yeah, I, I agree with this, I can do that. Um, it, it's just really easy compared to entering into a relationship with a God who, let's be honest, is very confrontational. He wants to transform you. And we don't all want to be transformed. We, we like the things we like. So we often just choose religion because that relationship business, it's messy. It's messy and scary, and it means we have to grow, and we don't like that. Um, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City summarizes Martin Luther's insights, and Martin Luther was, you know, way back during the Reformation, um, but he had these insights on this very dynamic, saying, religion is the default mode of the human heart. Your computer operates automatically in default mode unless you deliberately tell it to do something else. Luther says that even after you are converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on other principles unless you deliberately, repeatedly set it to gospel mode. This then is the basic case of our spiritual failings, failures, uncontrolled emotions, conflict, lack of joy, 
and ministry ineffectiveness. We need to daily make a choice to reset our internal compasses towards the work of believing in God and the mystery that he revealed through Christ in us so that we can enter into the reunification that God desires with us. And then we can tap into that power of him living in us. But yeah, again, it's really intimidating. This is a process that that requires vulnerability and giving up self. And I have a personal example of how hard this is for me. This whole dynamic is really hard for me. Um, I have a wonderful husband, and he's just, (laughs) I love him, and he is different than I am in in a lot of ways. But um, one way, he was just encouraging me early in our relationship, and this, this remains a struggle for me to this day. But he was saying, oh, maybe you could draw me out, you know, a little bit more thoughtfully and, you know, ask me questions that are meaningful. And I thought, I'm pretty dense. I was like, wait a sec, I'm doing so many great things to love you. Don't you know I love you? And so I was like, okay, could you give me a list of questions to ask you? (laughs) I know, it's so embarrassing. And, you know, he, he didn't want that, right? But I wanted a checklist. I wanted to check off the boxes and say, I did and said all the right things. Do you feel loved now? I wish it had been that easy, right? Because that's not what he was looking for. He was looking for a heart connection. He wanted me to like, sincerely be able to connect and ask questions that revealed that I understood his heart. He didn't want me to ask a set of scripted questions. to make That wasn't going to make him feel cared for. And the same goes for God. He wants your heart. He wants a genuine friendship with you. And that takes a lot more work than just going to church and just following the rules that you like. And I think it's really easy to see um, as believers, we're often just looking to the scriptures to provide those guidelines. I mean, even the guys who put the NIV Bible fell for this. (laughs) Look at these, these section headings in Colossians. Rules for a holy living, rules for a Christian household. Paul only laid out these directives after expounding on the phenomenal truth that Christ in us is what would enable us to live these types of ideals. (laughs) Paul only laid out these directives, directives after expounding on the phenomenal truth that Christ in us is what enables us to live these types of ideals. Without the Spirit of God empowering and informing us, we'll face failure and frustration over and over again. We just can't do it. And it's, it's silly to think that we can. Um, but some of us actually are pretty, pretty good at following rules. So this is hard. We just want to follow the rules. But guys, the, the Bible is not a rule book. It's a relationship book. And that's hard for me because I am a rule follower. And... Um, I love knowing the rules. Just tell me what to do. I'll do it. But following the rules actually doesn't bring me any closer to Christ. And it actually can push me further from him because the more successful I am at following the rules, the less I'm actually depending on Christ. On the opposite end, and then I can become more prideful and self-righteous. But on the opposite end of the spectrum is like the rebel who doesn't like following the rules and they flex their own personal strength, right? In both places, 
we're drifting further from God. But when we enter into relationship with the Messiah and choose union over our independence, then putting our sins to death and clothing ourselves in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, it will no longer feel impossible. These things will actually become joyful outcomes of the Spirit working in us. But because our default mode is religion over relationship, we have to make intentional choices that engage our hearts that look a lot like sacrifice, because it is. If we think about the Old Testament, what worship looked like, it was, um, you know, we think about valuable livestock just being burned up. And we don't really relate to that very much, but put yourself in the Old Testament person's shoes. You've got to, like, wrangle a live animal and drag it to the temple, and then you hand it over to the priests, and then you have to accept the fact that that animal will never again help you till the ground, the soil, or produce milk for your kids to drink, or become a meal on your table, or produce valuable offspring. It definitely seems like it was a lose-lose situation, um, but in this choice in this action, the Old Testament person would be communicating very strongly to God, you are my provider, and in you will I trust, not this animal. Likewise, when we hand over our relationships, our work, our hopes, our dreams, our vanity, our financial resources, our attitudes, and our words, all these areas where we find false security, and identity, when we hand them over to God, we're announcing, you are my provider, and in you will I trust. Take these as offerings, and then I can be united with the Messiah, and then I can carry all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge within me too. Let me tell you, the world, it's dumbfounded by such actions. Why would you ever surrender control of all those things? All those things that make you feel safe and secure and powerful and successful. And that's exactly where the mystery is. It's alive in you, but confounds the world. By surrendering control and choosing to routinely reset your default mode to unity mode, you reorient yourself towards God. You become a partner with him. You become a thriving, powerful conduit of the spirit. My college chaplain, Ron Capico, who was a phenomenal fanner of spiritual flames, he said this, God's method is people. Last week I was sleeping and at 1.30 in the morning woke up with this phrase in my mind. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's mind-blowing. I'd already read it multiple times, but just suddenly, and I, could, I got so excited, I couldn't go back to sleep for like an hour. God's method is people. You see, God sent his son for relationships. And he uses the relationships to share his son and the spirit with the world. You and I can be vessels in which the gospel is carried. We can be partners in this master plan. One of my favorite themes in the Bible is vessels. Deliverance came to Noah and his family through the ark. 
Moses was delivered from death in a papyrus basket. The presence of God was carried amidst the Israelites, guiding and protecting them within the Ark of the Covenant. Through the lineage of David, which included many notable sinners, the DNA of Jesus was transported. Mary, the mother of Jesus, carried the very Messiah in her physical body and safely delivered him into the world. And of course, Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, through the vessel of his physical body, reconciled us to God. And now we, in our physical bodies, have the honor of carrying that Messiah still, his spirit. And he's chosen us because his method is people. And we have the opportunity to be living vessels. Vessels made pure and, yes, holy by his presence. Holy despite how dirty and inadequate we may feel. He says, yes, you, my beloved. Yes, you, my precious son. Yes, you, my beautiful daughter. I want you to draw near to me because I choose you to carry me into the world. The mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are overwhelmed and we fight our human mentality to accept this unbelievable truth that you want to be in us, that you're already in us, that you want us to understand how amazing that is. I pray that we will all be willing vessels, that this week you will continue to reveal the mystery because there are layers and layers of this mystery. So I pray that throughout the week, everyone here will just continue to have these aha moments where they understand and receive this mystery more fully. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.